Good morning, everyone. I'm standing next to my wife of 23 and a half years. I'm excited to have Susan. And let me ask you, we're standing here in an empty sanctuary. And how did it feel for you to walk into our empty church? Sad. Yep. Sad. I love this place, but I really love our people and they're not here. Yes. I know so many memories. You know, our church is almost nine years old. We've been in the building almost six years in this very spot. I mean, to think about the children's area, to hear the voices running down the hallway, to think about uh, folks not gathered uh, as we normally are, to think about uh, the college students, some of them coming in late, walking right in front of us when Lauren and the team are leading us and singing, and even thinking about this very area, like this is a special place. Again, it's all about the people, but just think of the prayers that we prayed, the conversations we've had here. We've had people cry and say goodbye because they're moving out of state and having to leave our church. We've had uh, just so many rich conversations. Probably one of our favorite things is not for our kids that have to wait on us, <laughs> but to hang around to the last person wants to talk, and it happens here, and so it's kind of sad to not have people uh, not have people with us. Hey, it's week two of a series called Let Go. And last week, our very own Daniel Wagner preached uh, Let Go of Fear. And he- From the rooftop. From the rooftop. I told Daniel this week, I'm sure others have joined me, that it was uh, his best sermon he's ever preached from the roof. And a cool thing, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if, I'm sure nobody at home does, but last week I was actually in the sermon. I made you a part. in the sermon? I was actually in the sermon. If you go back and watch Daniel's sermon about, it's at, I think it's at the 22 minute mark, uh, you see my white Ford F-150 driving up Dueling Avenue, and I make a slow turn into McDade's. I knew that Daniel Hicks, our communications director, and Daniel Wagner, our preacher, were up on the roof. I tried to be quiet, but you'll notice me stopping uh, in front of Fondren Cellars just to, not to get our communion wine, but just to take a picture, <laughs> uh, a portrait photo from the distance. But anyway, so I, yeah, I made the sermon for about a minute and a half, but wasn't it a good one? That sounds like something you would do. Yeah. And I'm probably not going to go back and look at that. Okay. Okay. Well, I get that. Well, today we're going to look at let go of regret. And you had said that if you were to subtitle this sermon, it would be, what can we learn from a funeral? Exactly. Let go of regret. What can we learn from a funeral? Now, we're filming this on a Friday, just so you know. We hope most of you are watching it with friends, roommates, family on Sunday morning as a part of a worship experience. But tomorrow we got two weddings. I'll be doing two weddings, one off-site, one right here with COVID wedding, less than 10 people. But a week ago today, almost to the very minute, we had a funeral. And it's just one of those funerals that I know that I'm going to remember for a long time. Miss Pauline Darrington, who for years had been involved uh, here with Woodland Hills Baptist Church, she passed away at 92 years old. And it was uh, just sweet and dear to be there with her husband of almost 70 years, Mr. Earl Darrington, uh, just a great man, a remarkable man, and to stand there with them. And it was hard to avoid handshakes and hugs in this strange season to see people come at 10, less than 10 at a time, and but to experience the day with him. And there's just a really a special moment of so many, but Fondren Church rallied and so many of our staff, many people, I, I guess I shouldn't name people, but I think of Seth Robbins and Durden Pillow and Tyler Hendricks and Mark Baldwin and some of their wives and kids showed up for a parade. And we had a parade, a drive-by, just to let Mr. Earl know that we love him, that we're sending our condolences, and that we that we love him. And so there was just a drive-by. It was a big party. Here's a photo that we took. I actually took this. I was standing somewhat socially distant behind Mr. Darrington as Nick Crawford. You'll recognize Nick, and there is his uh, little boy, Coy, and so they made a poster. Coy made this. There was a cross. There was an American flag. It says, we love you, Mr. Earl. And it's just a real 
great moment to see that. And this was when, I bet Nick remembers this, Mr. Earl Darrington told little Coy that he's living in the greatest country in the land. Funerals remind us of what's important. Certainly, we're reminded of the brevity of life, the certainty of death that we all face, but it also gives us um, a time to celebrate a life. But here's the thing. Uh, when we talk about letting go of regret, subtitled, what we can learn from a funeral, not all funerals are the same, just as all lives lived are not the same. And I've been to some where you almost you feel like people are making things up to pay tribute uh, to a life. But this was an example a week ago Friday of a life celebrated. And think about it. Um, we'll put this on the screen. The value of life, it is measured in terms of how much it was given away. A life that's really celebrated, the value of a life is measured in terms of how much of it was given away, not how much of it was held onto or hoarded, um, not how much of it uh, was protected or saved or wasted, but how much of it was given away. When we consider let go of regret, I want us to anchor in one verse today, and that verse is 2 Timothy 4.7, and Paul at death's doorstep, this was his swan song, and Paul writes to a young mentee named Timothy, and he says these words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Right before that, he would tell Timothy, and invariably us, he would tell us that he is at death's doorstep, that the time, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, the time of my departure is at hand. I have poured out my life as a drink offering. Again, the value of life is measured in terms of how much of it was given away, not how much of it was hoarded and held on to, how much of it was given away. And Paul is saying that, give your life away, pour it out as a drink offering. We, uh, when we think of regrets, there's two words that are really powerful, the two words, if only. And we stumbled on a, a website this week, we were reading people could go to this site called Secret Regrets, and as the name would imply, they can post anonymous regrets that they have. I want to read some of these to you this morning. Some of them are very specific, as you'll see, and then some of them are more general. I regret when you were a baby and I was 18 that my boyfriend was violent and I was too scared to stand up for you and me, and they took you away. That was 20 years ago, and I think about you every day. I regret complaining about us walking too slowly and you leaning on me for balance. It was so much harder for you being handicapped. I was just a kid, and I'm sorry, Mom. I regret that I never told you kids I love you when you were growing up. I regret that for some reason I still can't say those words. I regret that I was a self-centered mother who didn't let you help me in the kitchen because I didn't want it to get too messy. The list goes from very specific to more general. I regret giving you my heart when all you wanted was my body. I regret that I never saved any money and I'll never be able to retire. I regret that I never told you how I felt. I regret that I didn't fight for us. I regret how much time I spent complaining and criticizing. The two words, if only, can summarize a lot of our regrets. If only I could do it over again. If only I had listened sooner. If only I could erase the past. If only I could forgive myself. So funerals, there's the if only factor. People taking stock of their lives, thinking about how it 
how it's measured, how it's weighed, how it will be thought, how it will be remembered. There's also an opportunity at funerals to think about opportunities. There's a passage, we were talking about it this week, it's hidden away in Jeremiah 46, 17. And it's about a Pharaoh, about a former king of the land of Egypt. And it says this, just tucked away deep in Jeremiah. There they will exclaim, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is only a loud noise. He has missed his opportunity. Some versions of the Bible say he was bombastic. In other words, he had a lot of noise, but he had so little impact. A bunch of hype and not much hope. This, in context, just briefly, is the fourth pharaoh of the 26th dynasty of Egypt. And Egypt, for those times, was a very advanced civilization. Even in history, as we've looked back through the last couple of centuries, we marvel at so much about Egypt. And here's a man who led the nation, who had so much opportunity before him. But the scripture tells us that he missed his moment. He missed his opportunity. And that can be a life of regret. I don't want us to be able to say that about our lives. I don't want our kids to be able to say that. I don't want our church to be able to say that. Are we going to miss our opportunity? The same man who would tell his young mentee, Timothy, who would say, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He would tell the church at Ephesus to make the most of opportunity. Now think of the contrast of this Pharaoh who missed the opportunity. He missed his moment. He took his regrets to the tomb. And Paul would say later, make the most of every opportunity. The choice is before us. Tell us um, about regrets of action and regrets of inaction. Yes, we, we were looking at a survey. I showed it to you. You thought it was fascinating. We'll try to relay it to our people now. But there was um, Rutgers research, and they determined that they divided regrets, as you said, into regrets of action versus regrets of inaction. And they found uh, quite remarkably uh, that it was really the numbers were very distinct, that in the early years of life, most of us regret action, the things, the dumb things we did, the inconsistencies of our lives, the irregularities, the, the lack of integrity, the, the embarrassing moments, the dumb things that we've done. Oh, I just, I regret that I did that. Those are the early years. But in the later years, probably sort of, sort of kind of where we are, at least me, in the later years, our regrets are very different. It's the regrets of inaction. It's the things that we left on the table. In fact, you could put it this way. Our longest lasting regrets will be the opportunities that are left on the table. Oh, if only. And it's what we didn't do. We talked to a friend this week, a counselor, and we were talking about the ways that humans deal deeply and psychologically that we deal with regrets. It's because it's something that doesn't go away, whether it's low grade or high grade. It lives, it lives with us. A pastor friend of mine says that most of us have Two or three things that we regret, uh, maybe more. Maybe it's one thing that stands out. But how do we deal with it? The first way that we try to deal with our regrets is this. We try to bury our past. This counselor friend that I was talking to, that we were talking to this week, he said that there's a few ways that we do try to attempt to bury our past. One way we minimize Another way, we rationalize. A third way, we compromise. When we minimize, that's when we're saying, oh, it's not that big a deal. When we rationalize, we say something along the lines of, well, everybody does it. And when we compromise, we're essentially saying, never out loud, but we're saying underneath, we're saying to ourselves, well, I should just lower my standard. And all those ways fall short. Listen, trying to bury your past, it doesn't work. It's like 
a creature from a horror movie, it comes back and it haunts us. And that's the way it can be when we attempt, when we try in vain, to bury our past. Another way that we uh, try to deal with our regret is that we blame others. Now, this is the oldest one in the book. It goes all the way back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. I heard somebody say once that Adam, when he was caught in his sin, he took it like a man and that he blamed his wife. And that is the oldest trick. And here's the thing about blame. Would we stop? Would we listen? Would we ponder? Would we look at our lives and realize that when we blame others, we're not taking responsibility. We're not owning who we're becoming in many ways who we're not becoming because of the finger of blame. And so we try to bury it. We blame others. And then the third way that we try to deal with our regret is that we beat ourselves up. Now, this doesn't flatter you, but tell the story about the broken mirror. Yes, with some fear and trembling, I tell this story. Uh, many years ago, we lived out in the res, and we were married. We had our, all of our kids. They were younger at the time. We were younger um, at the time, and nobody was home, but I was going through something hard, and I was doing this very thing. I had regretted something. I had failed at something. It wasn't a moral thing, but it was a thing that it just was getting the best of me, and, and I was beating myself up. And with nobody at home, uh, my anger kind of boiled and frustrated at me and honestly probably mad at a couple other people. Uh, I put my fist through a closet wall, and it was just anger. It was venting, if you will. Some people would say it's healthy. Uh, no one got hurt. Uh, my hand didn't get hurt, but the wall did. And I put a hole in my closet wall. I think I went in there to pray, and maybe hitting the wall was part of the prayer. Well, fast forward to... Uh, many, many months later, I was home and I heard a crash. Uh, you weren't there. A couple of the kids were, but there was just a loud crash from guess where? From the closet. It was the mirror had fallen down and it, it had broken. I had put a mirror up to cover the hole that I had made. So you wouldn't know about it. I wouldn't have to, the kids wouldn't know about it. I wouldn't have to talk about it. You know, a lot of you know, I'm not a good fix it person. So I just covered the hole that I had made with a mirror and the mirror fell down and you can think of the symbolism here. I go to clean up the mirror. I'm on my hands and knees. I'm trying to be careful. I had assembled a mirror to cover up a hole that I had made, a hole that was a demonstration of the fact that sometimes I'm not as godly. Sometimes I don't have the self-control, the humility, the gentleness, the patience uh, that I need or other people think that I have. And so I am, the symbolism was powerful uh, in my own life where I was picking up broken pieces. There was a mirror and I was seeing my reflection. I was seeing my mess. I was seeing many uh, parts of me broken. And it was just symbolic to me of when we try to bury things, when we try to cover things up, when we try to mess with the brokenness, it's just not a healthy way to deal with that. And it's just, it's just not good. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Now, there are, um, some really powerful ifs in the Bible. We talked about the if only scenario. You read some of the if only this, if only I would forgive myself, if only. There's just so many of those if onlys, but there's some powerful ifs in the Bible. There are 1,785 ifs in the Bible. Most of them are function as conjunctive compounds. They're put in front of a promise. Uh, I can think of some, maybe you can in Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, First John chapter one, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us, to heal us, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. But Romans chapter eight, Paul, who said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished uh, the race, I have kept the faith. 
He wrote in Romans 8, right after he was dealing with his sin, his regret, he wrote some powerful statements. Some of them have the word if in them. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Maybe my favorite if of them all. If God is for us, who can be against us? That day when I was picking up a broken mirror that I placed over a hole in the closet that I had made, uh, reflecting my sin, reflecting my brokenness. I thought about the difference between condemnation and conviction. Now think about this, very important theologically, and it's so helpful in our lives. What's the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation is when I feel guilty over my sin that I've already confessed. Conviction is when I feel guilty over my sin that I have not confessed. You understand the difference? So conviction is healthy and condemnation is unhealthy? That's it. In a nutshell, conviction can be healthy, mostly if we listen to the Spirit's prompting. So conviction can be healthy. It can be holy. It's the Holy Spirit working in mm -hmm. us. It's really what helps us get right with God and get on with life. So conviction is that it helps me to confess, to admit, not to try to blame others, not to try to bury it, uh, not to beat myself up, but to admit it, confess it, to get it out there into the light where God can heal. Condemnation is the opposite. I'm feeling guilty over sin that I've already mm -hmm. confessed, and so it's, it's really from the enemy. So here's Paul. I just so appreciate this when we're considering letting go of regret. Paul is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us. So going back to the funeral, going back to the if onlys, going back to the opportunities, going back to the idea that the longest lasting regrets are the opportunities we leave on the table. Let's think for a moment, thinking about this man who said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Think about some of the regrets that we could think about now in preventing. At the end of people's lives, some of our common regrets can go this way. I would have. I would have loved more deeply. Think about just the very idea that there's so many things that come to us urgently. The ringing telephone, the avalanche of emails, the mountain of meetings, the pile of paperwork, the doctor telling us that our cholesterol level is 420, the April 15th tax deadline. There's some things that are just urgent, but rarely does the call to love come with any sense of urgency. Also, love is not love unless it's expressed. Many years ago, I was a part of a teaching team at a different church. We did a sermon series called What I Wish My Blank Knew. What I Wish My Wife Knew, we did that one. What I Wish My Husband Knew, What I Wish My Mom Knew, What I Wish My Dad Knew. It was a summer sermon series. We did those on Mother's and Father's Day. What I Wish My Parents Knew, What I, what I, what I Wish My Children Knew, What I Wish My Friends Knew. And we had a, a commons where we had markers and boards all there and people could walk up and write i wish my blank knew and they filled in and we used some of those real life 
uh, thoughts and feelings and sentiments from people. It, we just peppered it in our sermon series, in our teaching. But it, I remember it impacted me and it stuck with me. I, I wish, I wish, and to read people saying, oh, I just wish they knew this. And there was a pain that just tugged at my heart. And, and love is only love to the extent that it's expressed. But it's not going to come to us urgently and it's not going to be us holding it in. Oh, I wish I would have loved more deep, deeply. A second thing uh, along those lines is I would have worked more meaningfully. Now, there is a, a, a modern proverb. I've used it before, and so factually, I'm guilty. Many of you said this, you know, other preachers, teachers that have said it, but we have this little adage, this proverb, that no one on his deathbed has ever said, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. But point of fact, uh, that's not true. There are, we did a little research, there's several people who've actually said that. Albert Einstein said, if only I had more mathematics. French composer Ravel, I had more music to make. James Eads, I cannot die, I have not finished my work. Thomas Edison, I'm sorry, I haven't the strength to go on with my research. So there's our point of fact, people actually have said on their deathbed, I wish I would have worked more. There's a, what does this mean? What do we make of it? It's, it's kind of profound, but you have to lean in to really consider it. But there's a couple of myths. And one of the myths is that work is a problem. Love is the answer. Now, I'm never going to disagree that love is the answer, but work is not necessarily the problem. The problem with us is we look to work and we, when we begin to love it, there's a very healthy unbalance and children and spouses and friends and people become the collateral damage. But it's a myth to think that people don't have regrets about not working more and accomplishing more. God has given us a dual nature to work, to love. Uh, we've joked before, there's been examples in the media played out in popular culture and professional sports where a coach will win a Super Bowl or national championship and he'll retire. And you're thinking, why is he retiring? He's at the top of his game and he retires to quote unquote, spend more time with his family. Then a year or so later, he comes out of retirement. He's coaching with so-and-so. He's got another big contract. How did it go with your family? Many of us are quarantined. We're at home. Some of us are not working or we're working in a much different vein. How is that working? I think we all are starting to understand anew that God has given us the need to work, to love. Of course, that is the greatest, but also to work and to find meaningful work. So another one, a third one I put before you as we round toward home, I would have, I would have laughed more frequently. You see a picture there. Uh, I got his approval. There's a picture of our Wesley who will on Monday turn 16 years old. That's our baby. That's our youngest one. That's his sister, Haley, who's trying to hold him down. And here's what we know about Wesley, just giving him a birthday tribute here today. But what we know about Wesley is you can't stop him. You can only hope to slow him down. But what we love about him is his sense of humor. Wesley loves to laugh. He's such an example of joy. And Paul, who would say that I've poured out my life as a drink offering, I am, the time of my departure is set. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This Paul in 2 Timothy 4 would say in 1 Timothy 6, he would say to that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. So many people have that regret. I wasn't happy. I wish I would have laughed more frequently. Another one, I would have given more generously. Three questions I want to ask you about your finances, possessions, and stuff in your life. 
The first question is, what deep desires drive your purchases? The second question, when does striving for more mean missing what matters most? And thirdly, when does keeping up with the crowd mean mean not being free? I want to give a challenge. We've done this quite a bit, but I want to give you a challenge. I heard it when I was in college by a man named Bill Bright to think about your life in terms of this. Do this with your money. Give, save, and live, and do it in that order. Give, give generously, save, save wisely, live, live simply. We have an opportunity as a church, and what's been so good for us, one of the upsides in so much down and so much that's dismal now, is that we have seen people be vessels, be conduits, of generosity. We have actually seen people hand us money saying, give this to somebody who needs it. One man wasn't a rich man necessarily, but he said, while I've got my job, I want to give this to someone who's out of work. And we are seeing as a church family, because of people's generosity, we've been able to meet needs, very tangible needs during a really tough time. So the last thing that we would add to this, not only would I have loved more deeply, I would have worked more meaningfully, I would have laughed more frequently, I would have given more generously, but lastly, I would have lived more boldly. You were recently moved um, when you came home a few weeks ago after being up here. Um, Something happened. Something happened. Yeah, it was a couple of Fridays ago, and I was here, and a week or two before that, when the crisis hit and we saw America shutting down, that meant as a church that we went online, and we were, in essence, closing the doors of on-campus activity. we as an elder team um, had a meeting. It was a standard meeting, but we knew it was going to start looking different. Nobody had any predictions. Nobody had a crystal ball. But we didn't blink. Uh, we were beginning a project to overhaul some things in the building, the HVAC, getting a new air condition that we're actually feeling the, the beautiful effects of uh, right now in this sanctuary, uh, creating a kid space in a commons area, turning the gym into a community center. It would have been so easy for us to shrink back, to not move forward, to hit pause and to cower in fear. And I was really proud of our team. I didn't lead the meeting necessarily, but just to see these friends, these leaders in our church, these servant leaders point forward. And it was really cool. Um, What you're referring to was a couple of weeks ago when I was up here and I saw our contractor handing out checks and he was paying the people that have been working on the building, guys doing really hard work. And I just had, a, in a way, a point of pride or just a really good feeling of joy to know that we can be a part of something, that our being bold, our generosity is helping people and moving things forward. And it just, it made me feel good about the, the folks here who want to embrace our future and be ready for the day the doors can open and be ready for the people not only that are here, but the people who've yet to come and to live life uh, just in a bold, bold way. So today as we close, I ask you, Susan stands with me, we ask you, what if onlys do you have? Is there one regret or there two or three or more? What what are the, if, if only I had done this, if only I had not done this? Let me speak into you today again, what we've shared. It doesn't do any good to try to bury something, to try to minimize, rationalize, or compromise. It doesn't do much good to blame other people, to point the finger. It doesn't do any good to beat yourself up. And so today, I want to speak into you from God's Word that you too can make the most of every opportunity. You don't have to be one who it was said about that they missed their moment, that they missed their opportunity, that they took these regrets to their tomb. The true value of a life is measured in how much of it 
is given away. And Paul tells us that he's poured his life out as a drink offering. Could he have had regrets? You bet. But because that God is greater, because God is greater, he says to us today that it covers all the regrets uh, as we accept that forgiveness. I can't help but believe when Paul talked about pouring his life out as a drink offering that he was thinking of what Jesus had done for him. A former blasphemer, a former persecutor, a former murderer, one who would call himself the chief of all sinners, was following a Savior who had changed his life. No more condemnation. There is therefore now no more condemnation. So you can fight the good fight. You can run the race. You can keep the faith because of what Jesus has done, because he's a keeper and a finisher, and he's poured his life out for us. We close today. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We want you to grab the elements. We're going to close with the Lord's Supper with communion as we remember Jesus, who doesn't condemn us, convicts us, and calls us into a life um, that can be so rich. And he's, he did it by dying for us, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us. So take a moment as we sing, if you haven't already, to get elements, something to represent bread, something to represent juice. And we'll come back after this song and take communion together in worship.